from an energy point of view, you just have to stand today's ratio on its head. So instead of spending two thirds of global capex on oil and gas and one third on clean, we should be doing it the other way around. We should be doing two thirds on clean and one third on oil and gas as we go through the transition. And I think that, as I say, is, a, is an encouragingly simple thought. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Fedderson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora. And on the show today, I'll be speaking with one of the city's top utilities equities research analysts. My guest on the show today is Sam Ari, research analyst at UBS. Welcome, Sam. Hi, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, Sam's background is, is essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of meandering path from sort of blue chip organization to blue chip organization when you look at it. He did a degree in classics at Oxford uh, and then stints at the London, uh, London School of Economics and Harvard, uh, started his career at the World Bank and then had a long and distinguished career at the, the Boston Consulting Group, uh, becoming a partner. Uh, since then, he moved to uh, UBS, uh, the investment bank, where he leads their utilities equities uh, analysis team. He also had detours during his career at one point uh, to Oxford Smith School for the Environment, uh, where he looked at UK energy policy uh, and also to an energy services startup. Uh, Sam, question on, question on the background I have. When you, when you were doing research at Oxford, I read an article you wrote in The Guardian around... The, what was known as the Green Deal at the time, it was around lending money to households for energy efficiency improvements. You said it wouldn't work. And I think most people looking, looking back now would say it didn't work. Why, why is it so hard to get home energy efficiency working well in the UK or, or more broadly? Oh, well, that's a, that's a great place to start this uh, conversation. Um, and uh, it's a topic I spent some time on. Well, that's sort of best part of 10 years ago. And of course, it's a good topic. Um, energy efficiency is important and we need to be developing energy efficiency in sort of all walks of life. Uh, but there are two problems with, with it. One is um, energy efficiency tends not to save you much energy. Uh, it's something that the Victorians were the first to notice. But the more efficient you get in your use of a fuel, the uh, more useful that fuel is to you, and you tend to end up using more units of it. So I'm always a bit doubtful about energy efficiency as a goal anyway in energy policy. Uh, but in, in residential housing, which you were asking about and which I worked on a little bit uh, 10 years ago at the Smith School, uh, it's also just very difficult because the things you can do which help with efficiency are all quite expensive and quite long payback. You know, replacing single-paned windows with double-glazed windows can have a 50-year payback, depending how much you spend on the windows. And it's well known that people tend to live in the same house on average for about 10 years, and so a 50-year payback is just is too long and too slow. Um, but there are a number of issues like that. Those are the kind of problems that, that you have in residential energy so, efficiency. 
Interesting. I mean, you often hear, or I often hear uh, politicians, policymakers say, you know, the cheapest low carbon electron is the one you don't use. Uh, I suppose by, by definition, it's free. You're, you're challenging that logic. In fact, you're suggesting that to decarbonize, it's much better just to produce lots of cheap electrons and cheap low carbon molecules. Uh, and you're going to get more bang for your buck that way. Yeah, well, right? look, don't, get, don't get me wrong. Um, we have to reduce wastage, especially in, you know, the sectors that are running off uh, fossil fuels. Of course, we need to do that. But just look at the last, um, you know, 50 years. Uh, what's happened to global primary energy demand is pretty much tripled, quadrupled in some, some areas. And what's happened to efficiency? We've mm -hmm. got more, efficiency in, more, more efficient in almost every walk of life. So the proof is in the pudding. You know, yeah. the more efficient we get, the more the more we use in absolute terms. And of course, nature doesn't care about efficiency. Na nature cares about the, the total amount of carbon that's going into the atmosphere. So if our goal is decarbonization, I think we have to be a bit careful about expectations for efficiency. Yeah. But and I suspect there's a there's a nuance there. You know, how much of that energy efficiency was was policy driven and how much of it was economics? Of course, the, the private sector likes to economize on things. In, 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 in general, I, I suspect. Um, good. So you're now at UBS um, doing equities analysis. Could you just briefly explain what the role of an equities analyst look, looks like for the broad, broad audience that is our listener base? Yeah, so I am uh, an analyst for a bank for UBS and I run the European Utilities team. So my job is to provide uh, analysis and valuation of... Uh, the listed shares in the European large cap utility space. Our clients are asset managers, so hedge funds and pension funds and so on, uh, portfolio managers and their analysts. And they might look to us to um, have a discussion about a stock they're interested in uh, buying or selling and to understand what our view is on how much that, that particular stock is worth and, of course, the reasons why we think that. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so that's our job. And what was it like moving from consult? You're a partner at BCG, one of the one of the world's most famous consultancies, to equities analysis. What was the what was the move like? Why did you Why did you do it? So, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, probably mainly for my own reasons. Um, I spent a good old time at, at uh, Boston Consulting. Um, I enjoyed it. I think the work's very interesting. I learned a lot there, and I, I made some some lifelong friends clients and colleagues. So I feel, I feel very positive about my time at BCG, but I think at a certain point in my career, I just thought the analyst role might be a better fit for me. There's a bit more exposure as an analyst in that, you know, you get to publish your, your views to a wide audience and to make your calls. Mm -hmm. Of course, it can be very obvious if you're wrong about something, but yep. there's also a bit more chance to spend your time on, on the big topics and think about essentially where you think the world is going next and why. And, and that's the part I, I was attracted to in being an analyst and the part I enjoy yeah. about the job. Do you, yeah, I, I have had full disclosure. I had a far less illustrious career at BCG and also, also, also loved it um, uh, and then moved on. Do, do, you, do you have an impact? Do you think equities analysts have an impact on markets? Do you see your research moving markets in real time when you produce it? You know, you say something good about someone and their, their stock goes up one day? Yeah, so um, that, that's a good question. And to be, 
To be honest, I think the answer is yes and no. So if you, as an analyst, if you figure something out that's going to happen and the markets haven't spotted it yet, then, then yes, when you publish that, the markets uh, ought to react. Uh, and they often do. Not always straight away, but over time. And, you know, it's a, it's a good feeling when, when that happens. Uh, but the markets don't move just because some analyst somewhere um, has written some words down on a piece of paper or calculated no. some number in a spreadsheet. It's, um, it's not the analyst which moves the market. It's the thing the analyst has figured out mm-hmm. which moves the market. And so that's the fun part because the job, the job is to figure out what, what is that thing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a, and it sounds like, so there's this theory in finance that many will be familiar with the efficient markets hypothesis that says that uh, something along the lines of, you know, all, you know, all available information is automatically incorporated into stock prices. Um, It sounds like you're not a supporter of the efficient markets hypothesis. You, you think that with, with effort and analysis, you can, you can find a bit more information and, and, and truth. Well, I wouldn't say that I'm um, that I don't support that hypothesis. That's maybe you should ask a finance professor uh, on that one. But I would say if the efficient markets hypothesis is right, the way it happens is by people doing analysis mm-hmm. and figuring things out. So I just think that as analysts, we're we're part of that process. Yeah, and how much how much of success in your role and this is something i think about a lot in the context of aurora because of course we 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 do quite a lot of forecasting as well fortunately long-term forecasting rather than short short short-term forecasting but how much of how much of success is luck and how much of it is skill in your role do, do you think so you 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 warned me about that question and i wrote in my notes i have no idea exclamation mark I think probably to be a bit more thoughtful than that, I think there is a roll of the dice in um, in most walks of life. And that's true for me as an analyst and for you as a price forecaster and for many people in, in many jobs. But um, there are things you can do to kind of tilt the probabilities. And I would say one thing that the very nice thing about being an analyst is that, you know, we're talking every day to the market, to clients, to you know, our colleagues, the energy analysts around the world and other regions, the analysts of other sectors, uh, and of course, to the companies that we cover. Uh, we go on roadshow with them and we do events with them and we're often on the phone to them. And literally everybody you talk to um, has some knowledge that you don't have. Um, it can all be, of course, public information and we operate only in a world of public information. But you can still be learning every day from talking to people and debating the issues. Uh, and of course, sometimes it's overwhelming because you, you know, you're drowning in information and the, the job is to decide what you're going to ignore. But sometimes it's quite exciting because you realize you're, you know, you're at the center of a debate and you're the one who's going to be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together before uh, anyone else does. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I, I think there's something about people's expectations as well. Do you get a, and I imagine you're dealing with a fairly educated audience, but do you, I mean, and, and, you know, when I, when I, I liken it a little bit to coaching a, you know, forecasting a bit like coaching a football team, you probably get too much credit when you're winning and, and, and too much credit when you're losing as, as well, in a sense. Do you, do you find that the, 
a key element of this is kind of setting the bar at the right level. Like if, if there are people who understand that what you're doing is complicated, then, then you're going to be wrong. If you're doing it well, you're going to be wrong 49% of the time or something like that. That's an easier, that's an easier interaction than, than those out there that are, that are, you know, don't know where to set the bar, but that both exist. Yeah, I think I hadn't thought of it as setting the bar. Um, you know, I think of it probably in real life more as getting through the day. Uh, but I, I think you're probably right that um, if you set out as an analyst to anticipate and evaluate everything, uh, you know, correctly and first, uh, you, you would never be able to do that. Mm. Um, I think if I put myself in the shoes of, of some important clients of ours, they don't expect us to know everything. They know that they know a lot of things we don't know our role is to you know contribute and sometimes you contribute by um just providing some information you might have been um to a results call that the client didn't listen to and you're just feeding back what you learned you might have been on roadshow with the company or you might have had an idea or you might have been reworking the model and realized that something doesn't doesn't add up and you changed your forecasts um as long as you've contributed i think clients uh clients appreciate the work and no one expects us you know, any individual analyst to have mastered everything. I mean, thank goodness. Otherwise, it would be an impossible job. Mm. Do you think you, you raise an interesting point there on changing one's mind? I think in the political debate, at, at least, I think there's a sort of, there's a pretty high tax you pay for changing your mind in, in general. Do, do you think in equities analysis, the, you know, the price, the price is higher than it should be for changing one's mind on things? So there's a trade-off there, I would say, because on the one hand, I would say I change my mind all the time. You know, we've had yeah, stocks, we upgraded and then we downgraded or downgraded and then we upgraded. Um, and, uh, you know, when the facts change, you have to change your uh, point of view. Or even if you realize that you interpreted the wrong facts or you put too much weight on one fact and another fact, and that's been more important, you know, so you do need to be able to change your mind um, frequently and, you know, be thick skinned about it and ex explain why. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, our, our kind of views are published. There's a process for publishing. We only ever publish to everybody at the same time. So, and that process takes a bit of time. So we don't change our ratings every day, mm -hmm. you know, we change ratings maybe half a dozen or a dozen times in a year. And we're not like, a, a, you know, a fast moving hedge fund that might be changing their positions, you know, a dozen times in a day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh, we're somewhere in between. Okay. Okay. Um, could I ask, so I imagine the one of the biggest topics for you this year has been COVID-19, although I know you've been researching on a bunch of other topics as, as well and managing to, to, to move beyond COVID as well. How, can you say a bit about how you see that, you know, it hitting the utility sector and you know, which regions in Europe is it hitting, which types of, which types of companies is it hitting in general? Well, look, it hit, it hit everybody to begin with um, across markets and within the sector across, uh, you know, uh, across the value chain and across geographies. I think the, the main problem at the end of March was just trying to get a handle on what COVID would mean. 
So what was it? What would the policy response be? And who would have exposure? I think um, from the company's point of view, they had to react very quickly just to, you know, number one, look after their people and, you know, number two, kind of keep operations running. Uh, and so they had their heads down doing that for a bit before they started communicating to the market about uh, earnings and valuation and so on. But as we started to figure out what the valuation impacts were going to be, I would say it was quite widely spread across the value chain. You know, there was there were impacts in upstream for those uh, with the uh, oil and gas business. That's relatively rare in utilities now, mm. but there's still a bit of it out there. There were impacts in downstream for those with the services business and sort of feet, feet on the street that were impacted by the lockdowns around Europe. I think all the power generators felt the impact of of a big step down in, in power demand and then prices moving with it. Uh, and then the other thing in Europe is we've got a bunch of companies that have a footprint in Latin America. And so then you started having uh, exchange rates moving quite, quite dramatically mm-hmm. as well. So I think almost all of the names had some exposure. There were a few which uh, where we thought the exposure was, was much less than others that yeah. were uh, more resilient. Uh, but even those that had quite a big knock in the end of March, beginning of April, have, uh, have bounced back quite strongly already in May and June, which tells you something about where market sentiment has gone. Yeah. And, and do, you see, do, do you see the impact in the long run? So, so you talked about you know, demand shocks and exchange rates and those types of things. And, and I suppose there's a, there's a couple possibly. And one is we've seen BP revised down uh, their, their oil price assumption substantially, you know, sort of on the basis of COVID, they've changed their view on what the 2030 or the 2035 oil price looks like. Um, there's also, I suppose, with some, an expect, I suppose, for those that have regulated uh, returns, you know, more stable, arguably, that, that those assets are seen as having a bit more of a premium compared to those that are more merchant and more exposed to these types of risks. Perhaps it's made them more salient. Where have you seen the big long run? You know, has anyone changed their long run view of the world? Well, I think we're all kind of in the process of adjusting, adjusting our worldview. But your BP example is interesting. And, you know, I'm not the analyst on, on BP. Uh, so um, I should be careful to say, I, you know, I'm not close to what BP's thinking is. But I would guess from the outside that their long term oil price forecast changes have as much to do with climate change as they do uh, as they have to do with COVID. Yeah. And that would be kind of my answer to your question as well. Uh, and what I mean is uh, that I would say, yes, COVID is evidently going to have some important impacts on, on all of our lives, on small things like, you know, working from home and not, not commuting, to big things like bond yields and the national debt and what you think happens to international relations and geopolitics and um, the US and China and so on. But my, my personal belief is that there will be even more uh, important, significant impacts for humanity as a whole from climate change. Mm-hmm. Although we need to be focused on COVID uh, this year and you know, for a period of time, I think we'll pretty soon be refocusing again on the challenges of climate change and energy transition. And if, and if you know, John, if you're thinking, I suppose lots of us do, if you're thinking about how our our children's lives might be different to our lives. I, I would think that climate change is likely to have the most important impact uh, on that kind of question in the long run.
Yeah, yeah, okay. So, okay, interesting. And I suppose COVID. Do you think it's made the? Do you think it's made the risks of climate change more salient, uh, or do you do you think these are sort of unrelated, unrelated risks? Um. Well, I mean, there are overlaps in a lot of these topics, and the you know they have to do with the interconnectedness of of the modern mm-hmm. the modern world. But actually, I would say in the short run, what was interesting is that the the need to focus and rightly focus on COVID uh, absorbed all the attention of companies and uh, markets for the last few months. And I mean, it seems like an eon away, but in December, January, February this year, I would say 99% of conversations we were having had a energy transition or climate change uh, type uh, component to them. That was the main topic that anybody in the energy sector wanted to talk to us about. Of course, from March, April and May, 0% of our conversations mm-hmm. were about the energy transition. Uh, and in through June, I would say it's gone a bit more 50-50. You know, the, yeah. the uh, immediate pressures of COVID have eased a little bit and then some of the climate topics have edged their way back into the news and into people's minds. Yeah. And I think that process will continue. Yeah. Good. And that's probably a good segue to, to some of the themes that you've been thinking about and, and publishing on around the energy transition. So one of, and for those that, for those that aren't, don't follow Sam's work, you know, he publishes these big, big picture topics. A couple of years ago, it was about uh, the big renewables potential uh, globally, you know, hundreds of gigawatts per annum. I think last year you were, you were focused on where capital was coming from for the energy transition. And I found that a really interesting topic. You were, you were talking about how a lot of the capital will come from oil and gas majors, you know, the BPs, the shells, in order to, in order to drive you know, decarbonisation of the power sector and, and more broadly. What is it that gives you confidence that these big oil and gas companies where you know, 90 95% of the revenues is, is coming from you know, carbon-intensive activities, what gives you confidence that they can play such an important role in the energy transition? Well, right. So this is this is the meat of it then. So now we're really into into some content and some thoughts about about the world. So I, I love having this discussion and, and your questions well well put. Um and I think I think you are right to, to focus on where the money is gonna come from, which is which is what you're doing and what we've been trying to do as well. And um, you know, one one place clearly that financing the energy transition you know, finance for the energy transition could come from is the oil sector. And actually, that's, that's kind of an encouraging point, because if you look at the data that's available on global investment, capital spending in the, in the energy sector around the world, in recent years, what you see is a mix that's about two thirds of the total on fossil assets and projects, and about one third on clean energy activities. And if I go back, John, to that fantastic report which your team wrote for us last year, um, you guys made an estimate of how much uh, we need to spend on the clean side to get to net zero. And you put the number at around, uh, you know, a little bit over a trillion dollars a year. I think it was 1.1, 1.2 for the next 30 years to get to net zero 2050. And then that in turn turns out to be the equivalent 
of about two thirds of the current global uh, capital spend in energy. So okay. what, I'm, what I'm saying is, look, from an energy point of view, you just have to stand today's ratio on its head. So instead of spending two thirds of global capex on oil and gas and one third on clean, we should be doing it the other way around. We should be doing two thirds on clean and one third on oil and gas as we go through the transition. And I think that, as I say, is, a, is an encouragingly simple thought. Mm-hmm. But it does kind of mean that I'm, 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 you know, well, does that mean that I'm confident the oil majors are going to carry yeah. out that sort of rotation for us? And, and I'm not sure. Some of them talk about it and look pretty motivated already, particularly in Europe. Some of the U.S. majors look a bit less motivated, to be honest. But in a way, I'm tempted to say, uh, look, it it doesn't matter what management teams think because at the fundamental level, this is a global capital allocation problem. And that is what capital markets are there to sort out. I'm I'm the first to admit that there's a lot of things um, wrong with capitalism. If, If you want to come back next week and we'll do a podcast on uh, the problems on with capitalism. capitalism then please count me in i have a lot of thoughts on that topic too but capitalism is the system that we've got right now and my view is that the way capitalism will try to solve the climate problem is actually much more simple than everybody thinks uh, and it's essentially the cost of capital so yeah. debt and equity will become increasingly expensive for the fossil sector and increasingly cheap for the clean sector at least on a relative basis until that tips the scales enough for the capex to flow from one sector to the other. And governments will try and help that process, and some are trying already, but eventually mm. management teams will have no choice. They just have to follow the money. Yeah, is there something on, but is there something on oil and gas? So, for you know, I suppose if, if they need to go from two thirds to one third, they're halving their capex, they're going to generate lots of cash. Um, is there an argument that they're better off just paying dividends to shareholders, not even trying to get into this re- renewable space? Or do you think it's a, na- a or, or whatever it is, energy transition space? Or do you think well, it's a natural adjacency? Yeah. Okay. So let's let the thousand flowers bloom. The oil sector is a big sector and let's, let's um, let some different companies take different approaches to it. Yeah. I mean, to be, to be completely, um, you know, to draw a cartoon of what we see at the minute, it feels like the US majors are more in the camp of sticking to your knitting and paying out dividends and buybacks and so on. Mm. It means that that money will end up back with investors and then maybe they'll invest it back in my sector. So the rotation will happen that way. Yeah. European oil companies are a bit more in the mindset, it seems, of rebalancing their capital plans themselves. And of course, the advantage of the US approach is you don't have to change much in your organization. But the disadvantage after a period is you've got to manage a declining business, which is always hard in, in oil and gas, as in consulting or any other, any other business. Um, on the other hand, for the Europeans, the advantage is they have these big visions and they can talk to their employees and their stakeholders about where they're trying to go, which is great. Yeah. They have a lot of change to deliver, which, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. So as I yeah. said, let's let the thousand flowers bloom and see which, 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 um, which strategy uh, grows the best. Yeah, and I'll, I'll try and uh, we might briefly talk about what, because your big topic, your big recent topic is about hydrogen and, and when or, or if that's already reached parity with oil. Uh, to me, it feels like, and we, we'll get into this hopefully a little bit later, that 
you know, hydrogen and a global market and transport could be the, the, the thing that these major oil companies have a natural advantage in, in the, in the zero carbon world. So that, that, that potentially could be a game changer. It feels like to me, um, yeah. the other topic, the other topic of your, uh, of your major research has been around, or at least you've been talking about the phenomena of global, global utilities. You know, the, the argument, there's going to be hundreds of gigawatts. Aurora is 1.1 trillion Per, per year or whatever it is. Uh, and so if you're a European utility like Orsted or RWE or Iberdrola or EDP or whoever it is, you should be chasing global opportunities. Is that, you know, what, is that what's driven this change from kind of vertically integrated national champions to, you know, global multi-market renewables developers and operators, or is there something else going on here? Yeah, I th- look, what I think is going on is, is actually pretty, pretty straightforward. I think it's old-fashioned economics, and it's um, you'll you'll laugh, but it's the old Boston Consulting Group um, industry learning curve at mm-hmm. work. You know, um, I, I think historically a lot of re- utility businesses were, were were local because they were regulated, and regulated businesses do well when they're close to their regulatory stakeholders. Look after the authorizing environment, the media, the NGOs, the politicians, uh, the technical regulators who, who determine which activities you're allowed to undertake and how much money you can make. And that tends to be a local activity. Um, in renewables, uh, you know, this is an industry that's been growing up on, on, uh, on subsidies originally and now what's left of subsidies or, or regulatory frameworks, which you still have to bid to get access to. Mm. And so everything is competitive. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't have a competitive cost base, you're not going to win. Yeah. And so the companies are doing everything to be competitive. And the, the biggest driver of competitiveness is scale. If you look back, I, I like the example of offshore wind because the first offshore wind farm in the world was built in 1991 and it was a five megawatt wind farm. And today the turbines going in are going to be 10 or 12 megawatts very shortly. And there might be a hundred or 200 of them in a single wind farm. So the mm-hmm. scale is enormously bigger. And of course, the developer might have half a dozen uh, projects like that in their pipeline. Um, solar parks can be a million or two million panels at a time, or even some we've seen that are even larger than that. And you get a totally different price on solar panels when you're buying them a million at a time, or maybe 10 million at a time if you're ordering for a whole pipeline of projects. Mm-hmm. So size is very important here. Size also helps the cost of capital, which I talked about just now. And so I think it entirely makes sense for the green majors to go to go after scale. Yeah, and, and that is what they they've been doing in the last year or two. And I, and I suppose that's so that scale seems to be mainly in the development than the operation of the assets. Is that right? Is it and and so arguably once these things are built, um, the natural owner may be someone different. Well, that's right. And then you get into the sort of financial engineering of yeah. it because, of course, if you're going to sell it to some, well, there's still, there's still scale in operations. So if you're going to sell a stake to someone, you're probably going to keep operating the asset for them. And then they want to know that you've still got skin in the game. So there's an argument whether that means you need to have a 25% stake or a 50% stake. But mostly the big developers are, are, uh, are keeping significant stakes in the assets they build. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's the income coming in steadily from those projects which supports the balance sheet and keeps the cost of financing the next project 
low. If you if you took that idea of yours to the extreme where you just sell everything after you've built it, you would have a different earnings profile as a developer. You know, yeah. you might have a very good year with lots of projects and then you might have a year with no projects and your credit ratings and, you know, cost of debt and equity would, would have to reflect that. So yeah. mostly what we've seen them do is go for this kind of hybrid model where you can recycle capital out of one project into the next one, but while you continue to, to own a significant stake in, in that project. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, great. So I'd like to conclude with a few of you underrated or overrated questions just to see where, where you stand on a couple of the, what I think are the central issues in the electricity system over the coming decade or so. Um, so the first, so I'm going to give you a concept, uh, and and if you tell me whether they're whether it's overrated or underrated, then I might ask you if you, if you can elaborate a bit. Um, so the first concept is markets for electricity. Uh, so do you think markets for electricity are overrated or underrated? I think overrated. Interesting. I think you're the you're probably the first person on this podcast that's ever said markets for electricity are overrated. Can you, in fact, let me, can I ask one follow-up question on this? Do we, how do we, I suppose, would you, would you call an auction for a CFD a market? Well, I see. Right. Okay. So tendering, tendering to get the yeah. cost down, maybe, maybe that's, um, that's, that's been very important. I was interpreting you more to mean, you know, uh, you know, the merchant market. Yeah. So people building building power stations and bidding in at a competitive price to uh, sell the next megawatt hour. Or yeah. Yeah. Okay. The sort of dispatch merit order dispatch type. Yeah. And type, my feeling type. is there was a one-time gain when the world went to uh, went to um, privatized merchant markets. Yeah. You know, because there was a price discovery. You found out over a period of years what it really costs to run yeah. an efficient uh, gas or. A coal-fired power station or efficient nuclear power station, etc. But um, but that discovery has has been discovered. So yeah. now we know. And actually, I suspect what we'll see over the next ten, twenty years is a gradual re-regulation of electricity markets with more and more central uh, coordination, central buyers, central dispatch models, etc. Um, where the regulator maybe maybe auctions the right to be in the market over a 10 year period, but then just tells you when to dispatch or not. And it's your job to follow your instructions rather than make a commercial decision about when to fire. Yeah. There's a, I think there, I mean, one interpretation of history is, yeah, these things were great for, you know, we had these public utilities that tended to overbuild and, and, and markets were great for sweating assets hard and telling people to shut down, but that was a sort of one, one shot game. Uh, and then, and then I think we are think, rethinking what markets are, are useful at the moment. Okay, the, the second question is uh, flexible demand as a solution to security of supply and grid stability. And just for listeners, by that, you know, the idea, uh, the, much is written about the idea of, uh, you know, Tesco turning down the fridges in their supermarkets or electric vehicles responding to grid frequency in, in real time. Uh, and can that solve some of our some of our problems? So, Sam, do you think flexible demand as a solution to security of supply and grid stability is over or underrated? No, oh, I think that's a bit overrated too. I have to say. Okay, uh, that's probably less controversial than my than my answer to the last one. But, yeah. Uh, okay. Good. Well, I won't I won't dig into that one, but it, 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 we could, and it would be interesting. Um, the final one, 
and this this relates that hydrogen topic. Um, the role of electricity in decarbonizing the global economy. So, do you think if we have to get rid of all of our fossil fuels, do you think uh, electrons, electricity, uh, ha- the role of it is overrated or underrated? No, I think it's underrated. I think it's underrated. I think um, there's often a sort of a line of thought that says, you know, we just need to. Uh, switch out the coal and gas in the power system for wind and solar and then sort of electricity is finished. Um, but obviously that only gets you to clean energy in the power sector, and yeah. which is something like 40% of energy emissions globally and we need a solution for the other 60% of emissions. Now, there are various kind of ideas out there, but one that you mentioned obviously is hydrogen. And if we're going to serve the sort of decentral buildings, transport and industry demand centers with hydrogen. Yeah, where's the hydrogen going to come from? It's going to have to be made with clean electricity. So, you know, my view is either we're going to electrify the economy or we're going to put the economy onto hydrogen that's made with, with clean electricity. But clean electricity is, is the underlying solution, solution on both sides. Interesting. And so what percentage of, I mean, broadly speaking, what, let's say, you know, fast forward to 20 70 world's close to net zero hopefully uh what percentage of our energy is coming from electricity as a, as a primary source whether it's hydrogen or so, something else do you think you know is it is it greater than 90 percent if we get to 90 percent in 2070 we'll be 20 years too late for net zero but i think we'll be doing better than 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 expected right now okay but but you you think I avoided giving you a number. Yeah. <laughs> I did that I'm trying to work that my, one out. <laughs> my, my view, and this is maybe maybe um, a good, good place to land at the end of this this discussion, which, which has been super interesting. So thank thank you, John, for your questions. But um, I think we have to be a bit careful in our sector because there's so much happening and it's so exciting. We've got these incredible cost curves on wind and solar. We've got a cost curve on storage, maybe one on hydrogen that's coming. We might have new forms of nuclear that are small and flexible and, uh, uh, and, and solve the problem of big nuclear projects. We might have um, demand response and some of the other things you talked about. Um, we've got lots of policy support. All these things are coming and they're exciting. But every time we've tried to add up the sum total of all these good things and put it into a model that gets us to net zero, we struggle. The challenge of net zero is unbelievably huge. It's essentially the challenge of replacing that 100 million barrels a day oil market that we've built yeah. uh, in the world um, completely. And I, I, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I think it's very, very close to impossible to do that by 2050. Maybe we can do it by 2100, or mm-hmm. maybe we can get lucky somehow and do it by 2050 after all. Um, but I think it's increasingly difficult to see net zero 2050 as a base case. It's mm-hmm. the wildly optimistic upside case. Yeah. And that means that we not only have to have all of these conversations and so on that we're having now, but we also need a conversation about what needs to change in a world that is hotter, where we've gone over one and a half degrees and the weather is changing and we need adaptation uh, as well as all this uh, good stuff we've been talking about on, on mitigation. Yeah, yeah. I think that is a great note to finish it on, Sam. So uh, to summarise, it's hugely exciting. Uh, it's obviously very challenging, 
uh, and uh, and I was delighted to hear you think electricity will have a very large role to play in it. Um, so I've also made a note that if we ever want to do a podcast on the problems with capitalism, that you should you should be the the, the, the special guest. So we may well take you up on that at some point. Uh, but uh, but I think that's a, a great note to conclude on. So um, Sam Ari, uh, research analyst at UBS, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. That was Aurora's co-founder and chief executive, John Federson, speaking to Sam Ari, research analyst at UBS. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.